Welcome to Creating Presence with your hosts, Dr. Sandra Bloom and Sarah Yannisey. Over the next hour, you'll learn about the processes that steer our hearts and minds and how to improve our collective social health. Welcome to Creating Presence with Dr. Sandra Bloom and Sarah Yannisey. In this series, we examine biology, psychology, politics, civics, and economics, and learn from thought leaders in these areas about how to improve our collective social health. Today, we are going to be talking with Jared Yates Sexton, um, one of my favorite authors. Hi, Jared. Hi, thank you for having me. So Sandy and I talk about the term social health, um, and we describe that as sort of the quality of our relationships, our sense of safety, our experiences of care and connection and respect, and all of the places that we find ourselves in communities. This week's topic is partnership and power, and our social health focus is politics and economics. So why are we going to talk about partnership and power? Sandy and I have spent our careers learning about trauma, adversity, and chronic stress. And we have discovered that helplessness is a hallmark of traumatic experiences. And on the flip side, partnership and power is a hallmark of recovery. I've been an educator, a mom, and a boss for a really long time. Um, and we don't really explicitly teach people about how to use their power, um, but we role model it in all of those different ways, um, sometimes not very well, too. And what I think is really interesting is that we sort of learn about how to use power through experimentation. We sort of learn as we do it. And young people experiment with power in social relationships, oftentimes through exclusion of other people. Um, they also learn about and experiment with power uh, with their parents through rebellion. That is a big part of my life right now um, as a mom. In the workplace, we see uh, the results of that experimentation and sort of lack of formal education about how to use power and build partnerships. Uh, we see lots of leaders who are authoritarian, sometimes exploitive, um, and workers who quiet quit or sometimes loud quit. But since partnership and power serve as antidotes to helplessness and despair in the trauma field, Sandy and I hope that they can also serve as antidotes to the mess that's become our current political environment and the negative effects that we see on our social health. Sandy, you've been looking into the history of shared power and decision-making um, in the U.S. government and particularly when it started taking shape and shared something with me called strong democracy. Yes, I wanna tell you a story. Hi, Jared, it's good to see both of you. Um, I've been studying the Iroquois Confederation because they were present when people first started coming over to this continent. And they covered a huge territory, um, all of the Northeast into Ontario and Quebec and uh, all the way over to the 
Ohio Valley and down into Kentucky and Virginia. So it's huge territory. And there were five different tribes at the time. And for a long time, they had been fighting with each other, at, at war with each other. So it was the Senecas, the Onondagas, the Oneidas, the Mohawks, and the Cayugas. And then later, in the 1700s, the, the, another tribe moved up north from the south called the Tuscaroras. Anyhow, according to their traditions, their, the way a federal union came about, because there's no tribe called the Iroquois. The Iroquois really is all five or six nations that it represents. And their account was that there was a member of the Wendat or the Huron tribe named Tekanawida. I hope I got that pronunciation right. And he had a dream of ending warfare. The problem was he had a stutter. And the, they were a culture that prized oration. So you had to be a good speaker. You had to make sense. And it was really hard for him. And he met up with someone from the Onondaga tribe, who most people probably have heard of, uh, Hiawatha. And Hiawatha agreed to speak for him with all of the tribes, with all tribe, uh, the tribal nations. And out of those negotiations came what came to be called the Great Law of Peace. And the, it's the Iroquois Constitution. And the purpose was to stop human beings from shedding each other's blood and to establish a government based on peace and justice and righteousness and righteous authority. And their method is what, why I wanted to talk about this. The method for decision-making and for making policies I thought was so interesting and so unlike anything that we see in organizations usually. It included men, women, and often children. And it's a really good example, I think, of strong democracy because it it's by building consensus. That's how they did it. So the, what happened was the, the Mohawks and the Senecas and the Onondagas were considered the elder brothers, and the, the um, Mohawks were the keeper of the eastern door because they were on the east, and the Senecas were the keepers of the western door. And so the way, the way it worked was that whatever disagreement there was or policy agenda, the Mohawks and the Senecas came together and had to reach a consensus about the issue. And nothing happened until they did. When they did, and they usually did, uh, it was thrown across the fire to the Oneida and the Cayuga, who were considered the younger brothers. And they would have to get to a consensus. When they had reached the consensus, it went back to the Senecas and the Mohawks for confirmation, and then it went to the Onondagas. And the Onondaga's job was basically to do a judicial review. They had to really figure out whether what was being proposed and what had reached consensus about was consistent with the great law of peace. And when they reached consensus, then the decision was made, was handed back and announced to the Grand Council, meaning to everybody in all of the tribes. Can you imagine 
that actually happening today in our Congress or anything even resembling that. Um, uh, as a result of Benjamin Franklin having a lot of contact with these folks, the great law of peace and the federal system that they had devised became then a model for our constitution. And it was completely different than anything people knew who came from Europe, who came from absolute monarchies, basically. And so the whole idea of our government, of checks and balances, public debate, and driving to consensus, which is what our Congress is supposed to do, it worked really well because there was no poverty, there was no crime, there was no police force. Now, lest anybody think this is just my crazy idea, right, or some uh, revision that the Native Americans have made to history, it isn't. In 1988, the U.S. Congress, in the 100th Congress, the second session, formally acknowledged the debt that was owed to the Iroquois Confederation of Nations for the U.S. Constitution. And this is what they said. I'm going to read it. Um, this is the concurrent resolution. The original framers of the Constitution, including most notably George Washington and Benjamin Franklin, are known to have greatly admired the concepts of the Six Nations of the Iroquois Confederacy and that the confederation of the original 13 colonies into one republic was influenced by the political system developed by the Iroquois Confederacy, as were many of the democratic principles which were incorporated into the Constitution itself. So I thought that was just an amazing thing to, to get the real details about. And you and I have been playing around a lot with how to take this very old <clears throat> concept of um, building consensus and apply it on the big scale as well as on smaller scales and trying to make it more practical. And I've seen this work really well in all sorts of organizational settings, um, family settings, right? This idea of coming to consensus. And what I think I notice now about our current political climate is that we're very confined to this idea of a win-lose dynamic, right? And rather than coming to a place that everyone can live with, we end up with a minority group where, you know, at the end of a vote, some group is unhappy. And, and that really ends up resulting in ongoing conflict, right? When there's a winner and a loser, the loser is sort of compelled to keep fighting or um, disengage in some way. And so when we think about applying the idea of consensus building uh, to our everyday lives, we need to think about how we engage people in coming to an agreement uh, where they are putting the needs of the whole before their personal preferences. And, and that's not something that we're really primed to do in our culture. Uh, it's kind of countercultural in a lot of ways. We're not conditioned for that. We're conditioned to win. But when we engage in a process so, so that we can build consensus, um, we sort of 
start with the idea that the the outcome of any decision is that everyone who's involved in or touched by the decision can live with it. And that means renegotiating and navigating and um, refining those those decisions or uh, suggestions. We have to follow some basic rules. I think about the the first few rules of building consensus as just like having good manners, <laughs> things like taking turns and speaking, speaking only for yourself, showing up prepared, kind of knowing the landscape, knowing knowing what we need to know in order to participate in a, a conversation. But then the the other rules of building consensus are a little more um, detailed. Uh, and, and it's sort of where I've seen the rubber meet the road. Um, one of the examples uh, that I think is, is a good one that I took part in recently around building consensus in my workplace was about uh, covering for people who were out on vacation. And you know, I'm a clinician, so I, you know, we see patients so when someone goes on vacation, there are patients who might have an emergency or or need to you know touch base with someone, and so there was a uh, you know a suggestion that we take turns covering for each other. Um, okay, great, but sort of coming to a place of you know understanding and and commitment from everyone who was going to have to do that required you know first putting aside or questioning some of our assumptions. So of course, my first assumption was like, oh great, more work, more things that I need to be responsible for um, that I don't feel prepared for. But building consensus means asking clarifying questions. Um, so how often is this gonna happen? Will we be compensated? How is this going to work? Um, and then once we have some of those answers, we have to assume good faith and agree to cooperate um, to get to a win-win instead of to a win-lose. So we're not voting, we're instead refining. So my participation was to say, you know, I can live with this if we define what an emergency is, or um, you know, if we can bill for that, or there's some compensation for that. And then the other piece is letting go or detaching from our own ideas. That's actually very hard for me. I get very committed to my own ideas. Um, but handing them over and letting other people see um, what else can be done. So instead, we talked about, you know, can we get an extra day of PTO? Or can, they, can the organization cover continuing education? Or can we work remote on the days that we're covering? And those sorts of negotiations and coming to consensus and sort of getting to a place of I can live with this if really helps us to avoid noncompliance, complaining, or worse, disengagement. So that's what we're talking about when we're thinking about building consensus. We want to thank you for listening to Creating Presence. Coming up after the break, we'll be talking with Jared Yates Sexton author, political analyst, and host of the Muckrake podcast. We'll be right back after this message. Follow 
Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. If you would like your organization to be aligned in its values, practices, and skills to be trauma-informed, trauma-responsive, and trauma-resilient, Creating Presence is the program you are looking for. The Creating Presence model is an online and coach certification program authored by internationally renowned Dr. Sandra Bloom. This program is designed to help your organization become certified as a safe and value-aligned place for both your staff and clients. Creating Presence is managed by Lakeside, the host of this broadcast. For more information as to how your organization can create presence, go to creatingpresence.net. Lakeside, your resource for trauma-responsive care. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. If you would like to know more about trauma and adversity, Lakeside Global Institute offers a series of 101 workshops on a variety of topics related to trauma. Available workshops include foundations of trauma, the skills of trauma, vicarious trauma, youth trauma, cultural sensitivity and trauma, racism and trauma, trauma and grief, social media and trauma, and much more. Workshops are available live web-based and online. To learn more about Lakeside Global Institute workshops, go to lakesidetraining.org. Lakeside, your resource for trauma-responsive care. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. Welcome back to Creating Presence. Sandy, Sarah, and their guests will discuss strategies and innovative practices for restoring our collective social health. Hi, welcome back, everybody. I'm very happy to for everybody to meet our guest, Jared Yates Sexton. Jared is an American author, a political analyst, and he's co-host of the Muckrake podcast. Uh, Jared's written expansively about his own journey through childhood trauma in a wonderful book, uh, The Man They Wanted Me to Be, Toxic Masculinity and a Crisis of Our Own Making. And I highly recommend it. In me his too. Recent book, <laughs> in his most recent book, The Midnight Kingdom, A History of Power, Paranoia and the Coming Crisis, he's really exposing how political power and religious indoctrination and economic dominance have been repeatedly weaponized to oppress and exploit people. And in doing that, he's really sounding an alarm for what lies ahead as what appears to be um, an order really fraying. So uh, that's we're going to focus on on the on this segment. And then we're going to take a break, and in the third segment, we're going to explore what Jared thinks about potential trauma-informed solutions to the abuse of political and economic power 
that he's been discovering as he's traveled all around the country, interviewing and conversing with leaders and people in every level of society. So we want to look at the issue of scalability. How can we quickly bring about widespread changes in our economic and political system? Because that's what we so desperately need before it's too late. So, hi, Jared. Thank you for having me. It's so good to be here. You've written about a lot about your own experience with abuses of power in the context of toxic masculinity, as well as, of course, abuses of power in the global history. So from your point of view, what are some of the parallels you see between your own experience and the themes that you've been describing in the and seeing in the political sphere? Well, you know, I, I really enjoyed uh, the opening segment, of course, uh, talking about the Iroquois Confederation and how those things had been uh, perverted and twisted. And I think that's important to remember that our system has been created and been perpetuated and increased and, and changed and moved forward with um, intentional unhealthiness, abuse and oppression. Like it's not it, – it's baked into the cake for lack of a better word. And, you know, I, I really enjoyed Sarah going through what the process of collaboration was because we need to talk about like how we get to that point, but we also need to understand why we can't all the time. And it made me think, I, I, I like to always open up a lens of myself. I think sometimes that helps things. You know, I've been thinking a lot recently, uh, whether it's in my own therapy or my own introspection, I've been thinking about my own problems uh, with things like codependency, with uh, things like a need to control circumstances or to feel like I have some measure of power. And you know where that comes from? It comes from when I was about five years old and I looked around and my entire life was dangerous and my own safety and my own existence depended on trying to navigate dysfunctional relationships, dysfunctional families, abuse, oppression. And so what happened was I had to learn how to take care of myself at the tender age of five. So as a result, and I, I recently left academia a couple of years ago after about 15, 16 years in it. And, you know, Sarah brought up these meetings. I cannot tell you the number of academic meetings that I had been in where I felt like I had to have control over the situation. By the time we left that room, what I wanted to happen needed to be done. And I was very effective in it. <laughs> I was a very good academic politician. And by the way, I built consensus. But I will tell you this, that when I didn't feel safe or when I felt like something on the other side could possibly hurt me, that's when I wasn't interested in building consensus. I was interested in power. I was interested in control. That, by the way, is not just in an academic boardroom or in an academic meeting or, you know, if, if a group of people are coming together as like a task force. That's every level of power from the personal up to the international. It all works that way. The problem that we're dealing with now is that we have a mental health crisis, not just in the United States of America, but around the world. And that crisis is a result of the, uh, what, what has been baked into this cake from the very beginning. 
We have generations of intentional oppression and trauma and also fear-mongering, which has been used to activate those parts of ourselves in order to make us either vote against our interest or to recognize that we're not interconnected with others. And because that has happened, we do have a system that has reached a terminal point. It's like driving a car but never replacing the oil. Eventually, at some point, that car is going to seize up. And what has happened in our political system and the international system is that neoliberalism, capitalism, whatever labels we want to put in on it, it has perpetuated so much intentional abuse and fear-mongering that activates that need that we're talking about right now, that we have a society that has been taught to be selfish, to fear one another, and to fear the ability to work together because giving up that control means certain doom. It means an apocalyptic situation in which I could be possibly wiped out. Or if my enemy wins, I could be thrown in jail or a camp or have my weapons taken away or have my family hurt. So what we're dealing with right now is a society that is in a constant state of irrational panic and terror, which means that you cannot operate in good faith. It means that you cannot build consensus and there's no means of getting together and talking about this. And that has happened on purpose because democracy, ding, 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 is very dangerous. And the people who are afraid of democracy need to control these types of things, which is why this continues to get perpetuated and why it continues to worsen. Jared, your writing also focuses on issues of perceived supremacy as a driving factor in colonialism, political exploitation. How do you see that playing out in our systems today? Well, you know, what's funny about that is, um, you know, studying the things that we're talking about right now, I've started to learn that there are different states of being. Sometimes you are up above people. That means you're better than them. And as a result, they need to just listen to what you're doing. Other times you are less than, and as a result, you need to figure out how to navigate those sort of spaces. White supremacy, evangelical uh, supremacy, uh, even regional supremacy, whatever we want, uh, economic supremacy, however, patriarchal supremacy, however we want to go ahead and, and look at those things, they're simply stories that we go ahead and take and internalize mythology, stories, narratives that go ahead and give us an excuse, which is, oh, this thing I'm doing here is not great. This thing I'm doing here is abusive. Well, what is going to make me feel better about that? What's going to go ahead and assuage my guilt? And, and that's one of the things I think a lot of people have lost track of. Americans are not good at understanding that they live in sort of like hazy, fuzzy realities. They think what they perceive is real. They don't really necessarily, they're not encouraged, motivated, or rewarded for introspection. In fact, like most of our economy is based on never, ever questioning how you're getting what you're getting and what you're doing. And so as a result, these stories go ahead and give you, like on one hand, if somebody, I don't know, breaks the law speeding or parks in a place where they're not supposed to park. Well, my business is more important than all those other people. The rules are for them. That's on like a very small level. But when it comes to limiting resources, such as in America, where our economics are much more stratified and there's a major, major gulf between the haves and have nots. Well, I deserve better. My family deserves better. My kids deserve better. Why? Well, 
we're on the right side of the spiritual debate. We have evangelicalism, right? We have the right God. Or, uh, you know, it's not comfortable to talk about white supremacy anymore, but a lot of people still have those internalized prejudices. Well, you know, I created Western civilization. Look at look at all of my works, you mighty, in despair, right? Like, look at what Western civilization has wrought. So as a result, I need to crush these people. Otherwise, they're going to destroy it and litter it, poison the blood, you name it. Those stories are what go ahead and give us the workaround, what allow us to be selfish, what allows us to be sociopathic, what allows us to exploit other people, what allows us to go to sleep at night besides the fact that we are basically sleeping on a whole population that is being oppressed for our privilege. So, so deep and so scary. What are what are the risks that you are seeing for both our country and our institutions in this current trajectory that you just so beautifully described. What what do you think's at stake? Well, Sandy, you and I, you and I have talked about this. And the, one of the problems that's happening right now, and I'll just put it plainly, things don't work right now. And they don't work because they have been so taken over and corrupted. And anytime, like, listen, there are inherent problems with capitalism, but capitalism throughout history, when it becomes so unequal, it start, it's, it's like a, it's like a, a, a clothes washer or, or a dryer that gets, you know, out of whack and it just doesn't work. And so we've reached a point where things don't work. And it's almost like a person who is getting progressively more and more ill, but is in denial about it, right? They're hurting. Things aren't, aren't working. They're in pain. And as a result, they're lashing out, right? They're, they're not in their right state of mind. So we are currently in a very real multifaceted crisis. Liberal democracy, capitalism, neoliberalism, whatever we want to go in whatever direction, these things don't work. We do not have a meritocracy that has functioned, has been completely bought off, and like we have a lot of people who have created a lot of problems, and they are now hiding the problems that they have created without offering any new solutions. As a result, we are an inherently confused culture. We do not understand why this has happened. Our educational system doesn't make it possible for us to understand why these things have happened. We don't have economic incentives to understand why this has happened while things continue to get worse and worse. Culturally, we don't really want to talk about this stuff. It's uncomfortable. It would take introspection. As a result, we are lashing out in every possible different direction, looking for someone to fix things without the necessary things, without going to the doctor and getting scans, without having to get painful, uncomfortable treatments, without having to change something. And as a result, we have an entire political uh, movement in this country that is based around a third-rate real estate, uh, you know, uh, reality TV charlatan who is telling people lies, but they're comfortable lies. And by the way, he happens to sound like an abusive father that a lot of us have had to deal with, but that's neither here nor there. We also have other political movements in this country. They're like, don't worry about it. We've got this under control. Meanwhile, it's the exact same people who have caused these problems. And behind the scenes, the people who caused the problems in the first place, they're not only hiding the problems that they caused, they're continuing worsening the problems and, and profiting off of them. This cycle continues and continues until it reaches a point of crisis. And, and quite frankly, we either fix this and we start to answer some of these issues or we're going to have a really, really bad problem.
This thing is going to die and it's going to be replaced by something else. And if we don't do this in a way that is actually thoughtful, introspective, and also more equal, like it's going to be even worse. And that's what we're facing right now. And, and the signs are all there. History tells us exactly how this works. We can see the cycles over and over again. It's simply that we are a culture in aggressive, violent denial right now. What do you What's think? It? Oh, sorry. sorry I'm sorry, Sarah. I, I I just wanted to spring off of something Jared said. So what do you think are the worst possible outcomes? What are you most worried about? Well, I mean, on one hand, uh, I can see how liberal democracy is being not just corrupted, but absolutely destroyed, broken down for parts. That's something that happens. You know, people people like to think that uh, progress happens in a straight line, that it never goes backward. And that's not true. Uh, fascism, Nazism, all these authoritarian movements understand that progress can be drug back. And that's what they want to do. I'm also afraid of not just people who are straight up authoritarian or white supremacists, People um, who Dr. Martin Luther King would have referred to as white moderates who accept these things, you know, when when all of a sudden you turn into a police state or a fascist state, they're, they're fine with it as long as they have their money and their privileges and they're left alone. Um, you know, we, we have a tendency to do that sometimes just in order to be comfortable. You know, when, when things start to get out of whack, Sandy, people start looking around for a strong father figure to come around and fix it. And that is what a dictator is. That is what an authoritarian is. So as a result, I'm very worried about that. I'm also worried about modern um, surveillance techniques, algorithmic control, uh, the, the, the control of information, the control of reality, more or less. So the entire point, I, I've had people say to me, you know, Jared, is this going to look like The Handmaid's Tale? And I say, you know, Margaret Atwood uh, did a very good job in that book but also did not have modern technology. And also on top of that, we didn't have like a complete culture like that was uh, distracted. So I, I'm worried about what this possibly could like, which when I always say that, I always like to say, I'm talking about how bad it could be because we need to recognize it and we need to figure out a different way. That needs to be the motivating factor. Yes, exactly. What's been the personal impact for you? I mean, I know you mostly through your writing and reading about the connections um, between our current situation and our um, and and historical issues. Um, but I'm curious about what this is what this means for you on a personal level. It's tough. You know, I, I come from a very dysfunctional, abusive background, so I'm very comfortable around chaos. Um, you know, like a lot of people don't like looking at this stuff. But for me, I always say if there's like a rough looking character at a bar, I like to keep my eye on him. You know, I like to know what he's doing and how he's operating. So as a result, I, I want to study these things. I want to understand it. But I will also say, as I have healed and as I have dealt, dealt with my things, um, one of the loneliest places in the world is to be healing, to look around at others around you who aren't, and to now recognize that this political environment is largely a result of people who are not just not healing, but they are like mired in the muck of, of, of their unhappiness and their dysfunction. It makes me sad. You know, it, it's one thing to, quote unquote, hate your political enemy or want to destroy them in an election or crush them in dust, which is what is motivating most people in our culture now. To move past that to a place of empathy or understanding or to try and understand why these things have happened, 
it is a it, it it takes a toll, but it also allows you to start to envision something different, and it takes you past those more angrier partisan sort of uh, feelings. I think we want to thank you for listening to Creating Presence. Coming up after our break, we'll talk more with Jared Yates Sexton, author, political analyst, and host of the Muckrake Podcast. We'll be asking Jared about how we can start to change course from the trajectory that we're on. We'll be right back after this message. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. If you wish to go into production to provide your own trauma training, Lakeside Productions can provide you studio rental, design, filming, editing, learning management support, and consultation for video streaming for your organization or systems of care. Lakeside Productions has developed over 50 courses and videos that are all trauma-based and customized with a variety of applications. If you would like to have more information regarding Lakeside Productions, go to our website at lakesidetraining.org. Lakeside, your resource for trauma-responsive care. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. In today's schools, there's arisen a critical need to equip educators and empower professionals to guide students as to how to overcome life obstacles and become successful and resilient. If you are a school professional, Neurologic by Lakeside can be a tremendous resource for your school and staff. Neurologic by Lakeside provides knowledge, tools, and practical solutions that can be implemented immediately to support a student's success and improve the school community. Through the training, coaching, resources, and curriculum, you can discover the expertise you need to meet the challenges that educators face each and every day. For more information, go to lakesidetraining.org. Lakeside, your resource for trauma-responsive care. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. Welcome back to Creating Presence. Sandy, Sarah, and their guests will discuss strategies and innovative practices for restoring our collective social health. Welcome back to Creating Presence. I'm Sarah Yanisey. I'm here with Sandra Bloom and our guest, Jared Yates Sexton. And we've been talking about our current political climate and issues around partnership and power, particularly abuses of power. Um, Jared, what are some of the solutions or interventions that you see for changing this very dire trajectory that you just described? Well, you know, one of the things that I have to study is paranoia, conspiracy theories, like how these things affect our culture. 
And, you know, a lot of people are like, how do people believe those things? And meanwhile, most Americans believe some type of conspiracy theory, you know, and it always is based on things that you can't possibly know or have any control over. And and I want listeners to think about how many times in their lives, in their relationships, in their workplace, there's something that they've been nervous about or something that they don't feel good about. And they've created a story about it, a narrative about it that does all kinds of things and it paints everybody that they know or is around in some sort of a negative light. They're out to get me, right? A paranoia. And we all feel this. But I, I do want to point out that everybody always says to me, the government is so large. International conglomerations are so large. What can I do about it? And, you know, we're told we're supposed to go vote every two to four years. And democracy is more than that. Democracy is more than just going out to to put a ballot in. It it is a a lifestyle. You know, uh, Sandy was talking earlier about the the Iroquois Confederation. Every member had it, their job. Their their democracy was in their lives. It was how they based it all. Unfortunately, Americans have been told, well, don't worry about that. Shop, watch things. Like we, you, everything's in good hands. And that was actually a political strategy that started to take over beginning in the 50s and then moving into the 80s. What we need to understand is that instead of worrying about what's happening in Washington, D.C. today and what's going to happen in the November election, and these things are very important right? We have to start with ourselves. We have to heal the trauma that not only have we gone through just in our lives, but the trauma that our politics and our economics and our culture have heaped upon us. And by doing that, we can start to actually engage with other people instead of, and this is what happens in authoritarian societies, society gets so bad that everyone is like, just leave me alone in my house. Please, whatever you do, whoever you hurt, whoever you crush, let me be at home and just leave it at my door. That doesn't work, right? As you give more and more ground to those feelings, it gets worse. We have to, I, and I know this is going to sound trite, we have to start getting to know other people. We have to start engaging in intimacy on a democratic scale. Like America has shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. We have to rebuild uh, our communities. We have to get to know our neighbors. We have to get to know the people we work with. We have to get to know the people in our area. We have to stop living these isolated, alienated lives in which all these stories and all these hatreds are just brewing up and brewing up. And going back to what you said, where politics becomes a win-lose, zero-sum game. And that is, I, I, I say that, I, I don't mean to be flippant about this. This is hard. This is a lifetime's work. But if people really want to make the world better, if that's truly something that burns in them and they really want to know what they can do to, to help, that's where you start. And quite frankly, that's where all democratic movements have started. Uh, if you want to really understand this, about 100 years ago, the progressive movement started out as a grassroots, multifaceted, communal movement. There were problems with it, but it also showed how it can change society in totality. Also, civil rights, you name it, the, the, the gay uh, liberation movement, the free speech movement, uh, the feminist movement, all of it. Those things all started as people started building, 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 and healing from the trauma that had been heaped on top of them. And that's the only way forward. I love this idea of democratic intimacy. And it feels like such a scary but powerful way of, of thinking about taking action. Well, that's part of the issue, right, is you do have to be vulnerable to intimacy. 
Like if, 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 and I went back to the idea of like, I always had to be afraid of control in order to take care of myself. That's how you keep up walls to keep other people out. In order to make our lives better, we have to be vulnerable to being hurt. And, and we can hide behind irony. We can hide behind distance. We can hide behind abuse. But what we're hiding behind is the possibility that by connecting with another human being, things could be better and that things could improve. And that starts, by the way, with starting to believe that you deserve better, that you actually do deserve better than the life that it is. We're told constantly that this entire thing, America, is the best we have to offer. Guess what? We got Fuddruckers. You know, like that, is that the best of all <laughs> worlds? You know, like the, the fact that we have Netflix that doesn't even work half the time. Like we deserve better than what we've got. And that includes education, roads, opportunities, just a basic value of life. Healthcare. But uh, healthcare. We deserve that. And instead of perpetuating the things that we don't think we deserve and the abuse that we have done and continuing to perpetuate that, we have to start opening ourselves up for the possibility that connecting with other people and, and discovering that interconnectedness. And I love that idea, democratic intimacy, because that's the only way this stuff gets figured out, period. We're, we're up against a charismatic leader. And I'm wondering about who, who you think are the key players in making all of the things you're describing happen. How, you have any idea of how we can move that along? Well, so here's the good news and the bad news. Uh, the good news is I think they're out there. The bad news is that the way that this culture has worked politically, economically, culturally, um, they have not been given much in the way of opportunities and or uh, exposure. Uh, I think the leaders of tomorrow are the people who, I don't know, unionize in a Starbucks or unionize at an Amazon warehouse. It's people we don't even know their names. And quite frankly, because our media doesn't talk to them doesn't feature them. Because quite frankly, and this is an upsetting thing to talk about, but we have to, our media is a corporatist space that perpetuates the exact same narratives that keep power exactly how it is and keep things from changing. Anybody who opens up the New York Times and being like, I thought this was supposed to be a leftist rag. And meanwhile, we're talking about why are gay and trans people wanting, you know, safety, right? It's because so much of our focus in this country is on the, the, the continuance of the status quo. The people who are going to lead us out of this have been intentionally kept out of the spotlight. They have been intentionally kept from having a voice at the table. But that's going to change because it has to change because it always changes. And, and one of the things we learn from history is as this cycle bears itself out, the opposition does come out. The leaders do come out because the opportunities are growing and growing and growing. So we don't know them right now. I couldn't tell you their names. I couldn't tell you where they're at. But if I was going to look for them, I would be looking for the people who have engaged in what we're now terming democratic intimacy through labor, through representation, through trying to protect other people who are vulnerable and who are going to be hurt by these things. Jared, you're making me want to run for my local school board, which is um, a very distressing idea uh, for so many reasons. Um, but also... I think you're really reminding us about the importance of taking power and creating partnership at 
any level or in any opportunity that we encounter, um, as small or as large as it might be. Well, and I'm I'm really glad that you brought up that example. And first of all, I think you absolutely should run. But second of all, <laughs> I, I want to bring out your reaction to it, right? You're you're obviously an intelligent, capable, competent, empathic person who wants to make things better. But you had a hitch in your voice immediately when you even mentioned it. And let's point out why. To run for even a school board in the United States of America in 2024 is to invite an incredible amount of abuse. Yes. There, there is a system that is set up where immediately, if you think about getting involved, and it's not just running for a school board, it's being a teacher, it's being an election worker, it's being anybody in any way, shape, or form who has to stand up in front of what's happening in this country. What it does is it opens up abuse. Oh, step out of line and you're going to get hit with the hammer, right? You're putting yourself in danger. That's not an accident. This entire thing has been carried out purposefully. Teachers, uh, public officials, uh, you know, public leaders, local leaders, they have been targeted by an entire operation. I cannot tell you the amounts of money and energy and time that it has been used. People who are listening to this CRT, now they're going after DEI, talking about gay and trans groomers in school. That was not organic. That happened intentionally. It was grown in one institute and think tank after another and rolled out like a, a franchise McDonald's. But the entire point of it is this. What you just said, that inkling of a desire to do that, that's a beautiful thing. But it is also courageous. And that courage is having to stand up in front of God knows how much money, how much effort, how much energy, how much abuse could possibly come from that. It shouldn't be that way. Th this is not the right way to be. And the fact that you had that hitch in your voice should tell you and everyone listening, oh my God, something's gone very, very wrong. And because something has gone very, very wrong, something has to change. And I think that's the important thing is that culture of abuse and fear is what is making this thing worse, but is also going to keep a lot of us from being able to get into the fight. Your point is so powerful and spot on. And and it's interesting because I I think of myself as moderately courageous, but I wouldn't risk it for my kids. And and the hitch in my voice was not so much about what will the backlash be for me. I'm old and cranky enough to probably cope with that. Um but I don't want my little ones going to school and uh, taking the beating for me. And I think that's where I see that um, that real challenge for overcoming uh, the it's it's fighting dirty. It is. And, you know, when I first started covering this stuff, I sort of fell into the deep end of the pool back in 2016. I went to a Trump rally and told everybody what happened. And suddenly I had like a national platform. I immediately suffered so much abuse and harassment and I had to make a decision, which is I could stop. And by the way, it probably would have been better for me, like mentally health wise and energy wise and safety wise, right? In in a way. But I said, you know, I'm going to, if I don't do this, this thing's going to build. I knew back in 2016 that this thing was going to get worse. I knew when I got older, I was going to have to look back on this period and and account for myself. What did I do? Right? Like, did I did I stand up for this thing? And what you just said is the extra level on so much of this. Like, if you look at America right now, your personal safety is at risk. Your financial safety 
is at risk. Your family's at risk. You're 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 uh, standing in a community. There are so many different things now that everybody has to carry around and consider. And all of those questions, as they mount and mount and mount and mount, it gets harder and harder to do it. That's not an accident. That's by strategy. No, yeah, and it brings us back. Oh, sorry, Sandy. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to point out that we're going to get um, Jared back along with Jesse Kohler at the campaign for trauma-informed policy and practice at the end of our series. And um, we were just having a meeting, and I, because I had found out the night before from a friend of mine who is the head of DEIJ uh, in uh, in a university, that a number of states have made it illegal to even talk about diversity. And one of the questions that I brought up is when, and it's related to what we're talking about, is at what point do we say, do we publicly come out and say something is wrong? It's just not the right thing to do, right? And risk what you're describing, which is abuse and cruelty and nastiness and potentially physical danger. Well, and I just want to I want to make this last point to maybe drive this home. I, I, I want people to think about maybe listeners who have been in this situation. I certainly was a patriarchal, abusive home where not only was that happening and not only were you suffering it, but there was a patriarch at the head of things who controlled the way that you talked about things. Right. Like you had to walk around on eggshells so you didn't mention the thing or else the abuse got worse. Right. And everybody knows that feeling. And you hold it and you walk around and it, it kills you and it, it eats away at you. And eventually somebody somewhere screams, this isn't right. This is messed up. And what are you, by the way, what are you risking? You're risking more abuse or to be thrown out of the house or to be economically cut off. What we're talking about happening politically and socially in this country is that scaled on a larger scale. That's all that it is. And we are dealing with it in every facet of our lives now. And like you just said, at some point you have to stand up. It doesn't matter what the consequences are. You have to stand up and you have to say, this isn't right. And something is wrong and something has to change. When you think about um, what you are doing right now to make a difference, to make things change, what feels most important? What's what's sort of the takeaway for you about what you're putting out in the world? Right now where I'm at, it's about building coalitions and starting to work to heal towards these things. I think we're in the beginnings of a conversation is what it is. Uh, I, I really uh, engaging that intimacy, talking to one, one person after another and saying, you don't have to be scared anymore. We can talk about this. And the moment that you start talking about it, I think you can begin to push back on it. So right now, I feel like we're in a waking up stage. And a lot of people probably have felt this, like you're walking through life on autopilot, you're sleepwalking. Suddenly you wake up and you're like, what has gone on in my life? That's where America is right now. And, and I think it's the beginning of that conversation and understanding you're safe and we can have this intimacy and we can have this trust. Thank you for talking to us um, in this practice of uh, democratic intimacy that we've just created. We've just heard from Jared Yates Sexton about the political ramifications and of, of abuses of power and his hopes for changing the dangerous trajectory our country is on. 
Join us next week to continue this exploration with Dr. Jennifer Fried, Carol Austin, and Jennifer Laristis to talk about traumatized workplaces. And they'll share some strategies for improving relationships, experiences, and outcomes in our work environments. You can reach us at creatingpresence.net or at voiceamerica.com. We're excited to see you and hope you'll tune in next week. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Creating Presence. Join Sandy and Sarah next week for another informational episode. Until we talk again, check us out at www.creatingpresence.net and email us at info at creatingpresence.net. Have a beautiful week.